Language and Power Podcast, Episode 3. In this podcast series, we look closely at the language being used in and around COP26. According to the official website, the COP26 summit will bring parties together to accelerate action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Important stuff. Language is crucial to understanding the climate crisis problem, to formulating solutions, negotiating political and economic pitfalls. It's crucial to communicating science findings and recognising the social, political and economic, economic conditions which have brought us to crisis point. Language is interaction that can accelerate action. But language is also performance and performances can be used to distract from inaction, to avoid action or postpone it. And language is what we focus on in this podcast series. Hello, I am Michael Farrelly. I teach English language at the University of Hull and I research and write on issues of discourse, politics, policy and sustainability. I'm joined as always by Tom Bartlett. Hi, Tom. Hi there, Michael. Yeah, so I'm Tom Bartlett and I teach uh, applied linguistics at the University of Glasgow. Particularly, I, I teach critical discourse analysis like yourself and also a particular branch of linguistics called systemic functional linguistics or SFL, which I mentioned today because some of the points that uh, were some of the means of thinking about and analysing the texts we're going to look at today can't come from that tradition. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. Uh, as we record episode three, we're on day four of COP26. Uh, this is the 4th of November. And in the official programme, this is Energy Day. So each day has its own, its own particular theme, and today's theme is energy. And some headlines that have come out today, um, the end of coal is in sight, according to the press release that goes out today. So perhaps we'll look at some of the texts that come out of that uh, on, an, on a future occasion. But today, we wanted to look at uh, a speech that actually came towards the beginning of the conference on the uh, opening day on the 1st of November. Uh, and it's something, it was a speech that I, I think we both think that it's a, it's a really important and very interesting one, but, but also important. It's by Ms. Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados. Now, this is a, a really, I think you hopefully agree, a very uh, powerful speech, but it's not one that either of us saw widely pro uh, uh, reported in the UK press. And so we wanted to spend a little bit of time looking at this because I think she says some important things. So what we're going to do is uh, listen to actually all of the speech in, in two clips. We'll talk, talk about the two clips separately. Um, so let's hear what um, the Prime Minister of Barbados has to say in the opening of her speech. Your Royal Highness, Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, the pandemic has taught us that national solutions to global problems do not work. We come to Glasgow with global ambition to save our people and to save our planet, but we now find three gaps on mitigation, climate pledges or NDCs. Without more, we will leave the world on a pathway to 2.7 degrees, and with more, we are still likely to get to two degrees. These commitments made by some are based on technologies yet to be developed, and this is at best reckless 
and at worst dangerous. On finance, we are $20 billion short of the 100 billion. And this commitment, even then, might only be met in 2023. On adaptation, adaptation finance remains only at 25%. Not the 50-50 split that was promised nor needed given the warming that is already taking place on this earth. Climate finance to frontline small island developing states declined by 25% in 2019. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust. Yeah, so that's the first part of that speech and we'll hear the rest of that um, in a short while. Tom, you wanted to talk about, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the systemic function, functional linguistic uh, idea of appraisal. Yeah. In, I mean, there's so um, much to talk about here. I think when we were listening to this together, we were getting sort of really excited and carried away, but also wondering how we could talk about all the all the things that are said here and the way that they're being said and the relationship to some of the things we've already been, been talking about. And I'm sure we'll remember some of those as we're talking, but in particular, Today, it's my turn to refer to the classes that I've just been teaching. So I've just been teaching about uh, the use of emotional language or the use of subjective language, not objective language, and the way this can be presented in different ways in the news, in political speeches, and to persuade people. And listening to this wonderful, wonderful speech by Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, I was very much struck with that and with some of the things I've been thinking about in class today. It's, it's a very emotive speech there's a lot of power to this speech there's clearly a lot of personal involvement in this speech which we can sort of compare later on maybe with 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 Greta Thunberg and uh, with Gaston mm -hmm. Brown people we've already spoken about and the way this combination of high emotion and straight talking come together in different ways and are used effectively by by different people yeah. and I think what I really noticed in this speech is as at the beginning we've listened to the first two minutes there what Mia Motley is doing, she's referring to the failures or the possible failures of the conference and previous agreements and the commitments, which we've talked about before. You know, it's only a commitment if there's a chance of it succeeding or if you try and make it succeed. So failures of commitments, but very much failures of policies and strategies. And in a way, this sort of connects to the way Boris Johnson talks about the conference in terms of success and failure of the talk, success and failures of the commitments. So she's judging mechanisms political mechanisms on to the degree which they've been effective yeah and that's one way of judging things and within the, the appraisal framework developed by peter white and jim martin within systemic functional linguistics it comes from uh, peter white being interested in journalism and looking at these things as i say and through their work through their analysis they sort of talk about interpersonal language in three different ways in terms of emotion capturing people's emotions, saying we're happy, the world's dangerous, mm. referring to emotions, also referring to whether things work or not. Uh, it's effective. It's a good example of its category. It does its job. But then also judging human behavior in terms of whether it is uh, morally sound mm. or not, or also if it's socially esteemed or not, to do with capable or not. And so what I noticed in this speech was she does talk again and again and again about potential failures or successes of the mechanisms, judging it in terms of 
the category of appreciation, how effective it is, how good it is in an impersonal way. But at the same time, as we're hearing that, you hear this undertone, this hidden message that there are people behind this and that someone's responsible for it not working. And that's what you'd call in the appraisal framework an evoked attitude. It's not there, but it's, mm. it's hidden. Yeah. But then right at the end of that clip, she does something. She actually turns around and says, this is a moral failing. So yeah. it's not just blaming the mechanisms or thinking about the mechanisms that Johnson has gone on and on about. It's a moral matter now. If the mechanisms don't work, there are people behind that. And that I think comes in, you know, your idea of mentioning people who's there and who's not in the absences. Mm -hmm. And it's their moral responsibility. So she shifted it from a judgment of appreciation of how well things work to a moral judgment of people named and unnamed. So that was that's what I really got from that. As I was listening, I was hearing this hidden evaluation that becomes very, very explicit at this point yeah. in her speech. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very effective, and that's a that's a really, um, really good way of, of coming to getting to grips with 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 what's happening there. Um, you know, interesting what, what you, when you were talking about the failure. One of the things that that you can contrast here is when we spoke about Boris Johnson talking about failure. He was talking about the failure of the talks, failure of Glasgow, uh, and he's talking about the, the event, and and that's that's where the failure is directed. Now, of course, there would be something behind that, but it's very at a very indirect and roundabout way of talking about it, and it's almost as if um, the showpiece, the performance of the event. The, uh, the the judgment of the event as an event is the is foremost in in his mind and it'd be interesting to go back and listen to his speech again after we've uh, looked at this one but in this case it's not about the event it's not about the showmanship it's not about the failure of of whether glasgow is going to she she talks about whether what happened needs to happen at glasgow but it's tied to very different types of things that are being judged and evaluated as as you say uh, so that that's what makes it different um so yeah really incredibly interesting but that does link link us to you know where you you get similar linguistic uh, either just phrases and words or similar um uh linguistic um patterns it takes us into the social actors that we were talking about so, uh, can i talk about social actors now at this point yeah. That's that's right. So we talked about those. And so what what the idea here is is that you um, identify those social actors who are present, so the people who are present in any specific, any particular text, and those who are absent. And then you can go on and and uh, and analyze how just how are they represented and what are they seem to be doing. Now what we said in that is that we were criticizing. Um, Johnson for I think it was particularly Johnson for for um, leaving out a lot of the social actors. So they looked like they were they were um, the the global climate change, global cli the climate crisis didn't wasn't being given any agency to people. Agency wasn't being ascribed to people. So it looked as though it was just a thing that was happening, and and nobody was being singled out to 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 blame. And we saw that as a a bit of a problem, but. Interestingly, the same thing happens in this speech, but to a very different effect. There are people absent in this representation, but I think what's happening in this speech is that she is um, using the absence, using strategies to not name specific people in some cases as a, as a rhetorical strategy to imply um, that that the people she knows who they are 
they know who they are because they're sitting right in front of her in the room. When she talks about, you know, finance has declined, she doesn't say who the people are who are responsible for taking the decisions to remove the financing. She just says financing has declined and she misses out the social actors. When she says there's been a failure to deliver finance, she doesn't specify the social actors who have failed to deliver that finance. So she's she has got an absence of social actors when she's doing it. But, but the difference here is, is that some of those people are standing right and sitting right in front of her in the room. Uh, and that what I think what affects yeah I, I think and I think what the effect there is is that she is clearly implying you know as you were talking about implication she's clearly implying that these people are to blame and that they should have done better um, but she doesn't name them and I think if she does if she did name them and started pointing the finger and, and kind of accusing people by name and putting you know they're right there in front of what you would see it you know they could would very would feel very attacked. Of course, they would, and they would lose a lot of face, as we were talking about the other day, as well. And potentially, then come back and a, a, attack her and and talk about you know she's she's um, potentially she's unhinged in some way. She's this isn't how you behave in a diplomatic sort of situation. She's you know she's an, an, an accuser of a, a very much more emotional response. But what she's doing really really cleverly is talking about these things clearly accusing people but in a very implicit way and not allowing them not giving them that um that excuse to you know walk out of the room saying you know this is an unacceptable behavior you can't accuse me you know and, and all that sort of thing so she keeps them just she just stays on the right side of the line that they can't quite take offense enough offense that they then uh, feel compelled to attack her back or or you know make that the story so i think that's really really interesting in there no, that is a great point. And I think I think there's a history there that a gender question coming in here in that when women speak with a lot of emotion publicly, mm. it's connected. Well, let's say the word hysteria. We also talk about the hysteria is connected to the word for the womb. It's considered a woman's complaint being hysterical and women are considered to be hysterical if they get emotional, whereas they may be powerful orators if they're men. I'm exaggerating the case, but there's a, a, a long history of this in the media of representing emotional women as as not realistic as not yeah. objective and therefore something that can be knocked down and quite easily yeah yeah, yeah all, all part of a, a, a sexist discourse that's been around for a long time uh, and and yeah. it, it, you you can see how she might be um you know she's not allowing people to 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 attack in that in that sexist way which i think is very very clever um uh, i think you know we'll, we'll talk about uh, the audience again in, in a little, little while Let's now uh, listen to the to the next part of the speech, and um, well, I think we'll play it through if to the Glasgow end, shall we? is to deliver on the promises of Paris, it must close these three gaps. So I ask to you, what must we say to our people living on the front line in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Pacific, when both ambition and regrettably, some of the needed faces at Glasgow are not present. What excuse should we give for the failure? In the words of that Caribbean icon, Eddie Grant, will they mourn us on the front line? When will we, as world leaders across the world, address the pressing issues that are truly causing our people angst and worry, whether it is climate, or whether it is vaccines. Simply put, when will leaders lead? Our people are watching and our people are taking note. 
And are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? How many more voices and how many more pictures of people must we see on these screens without being able to move? Or are we so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity? I have been saying to Barbadians for many years that many hands make light work. Today, we need the correct mix of voices, ambition, and action. Do some leaders in this world believe that they can survive and thrive on their own? Have they not learned from the pandemic? Can there be peace and prosperity if one third of the world literally prospers and the other two thirds of the world live under siege and face calamitous threats to our well-being? What the world needs now, my friends, is that which is within the ambit of less than 200 persons who are willing and prepared to lead. Leaders must not fail those who elect them to lead. And I say to you, there is a sword that can cut down this Gordian knot, and it has been wielded before. The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. 25 trillion of that, 9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that 25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition, or the transition of how we eat, or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us. I say to you today in Glasgow that an annual increase in the SDRs of $500 billion a year for 20 years put in a trust to finance the transition is the real gap, Secretary General, that we need to close, not the 50 billion being proposed for adaptation. And if 500 billion sounds big to you, guess what? It is just 2% of the 25 trillion. This is the sword we need to wield. Our excitement one hour into this event is far less than it was six months ago leading up to this event. Can we, with those voices and these speeches from Sir David and others, find it within ourselves to get the resolve to bring Glasgow back on track? Or do we leave today believing that it was a failure before it starts? Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road, one no less significant than when the United Nations was formed in 1945. But then, the majority of our countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist 100 years from now. And if our existence is to mean anything, then we must act in the interests of all of our people who are dependent on us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction. The leaders of today, not 2030, not 2050, must make this choice. It is in our hands. 
And our people and our planet need it more than ever. We can work with who is ready to go because the train is ready to leave. And those who are not yet ready, we need to continue to ring circle and to remind them that their people, not our people, but their citizens need them to get on board as soon as possible. Code red, code red to the G7 countries. Code red, code red to the G20. Earth to cop, that's what it said. Earth to cop. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees, yes, SG, is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, for the people of Dominica and Fiji, for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. We do not want that dreaded death sentence. And we've come here today to say, try harder, try harder, because our people, the climate army, the world, the planet, needs our actions now, not next year, not in the next decade. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear what you were saying about the, the numbers there, Michael, and how she really emphasizes all these facts and figures. They're very big numbers, mm -hmm. but they're, they're, they're real numbers. They're hard statistics, and she talks about percentages. But you were making, I think you're earlier on, you're talking about, made a lovely point about the reaction of the the world leaders as, as the camera pans out at this point. Well, you know, as I was saying, the, the the people that she's speaking to, many of them speaking about without necessarily naming them are right there in front of her. And we'll put a link to this vid, to the video of this in, in the description of the podcast. You know, it would be great if people could have a look at it. But the camera does go round as she's talking about these things. When she talks about finance, the camera goes on to Mark Carney, the former um, governor of the Bank of England and uh, Canadian um, uh, head of the Canadian Bank as well. Previous prior to that, and um, you know, you can see him almost squirt. He doesn't know whether he doesn't know whether to nod in agreement because he knows that what she's saying is is powerful. That that what she's saying is um, indisputable, I guess, to some to, to some degree. But he, he doesn't know whether to, to nod or, or or just to keep keep still. And a kind of and the same with um, other world leaders. Boris, the camera goes on to Boris Johnson, and he, you can really see that he, he's weighing up. Does he nod in agreement, or does he does he kind of keep still? And whatever he does, whatever he does with the camera on him, um, will will be seen as either an agreement or uh, a shunning of, of the of the kinds of things she said. It's, she's putting them in a very, very difficult position uh, with these words, but we, as we said earlier, without pushing them, go, without going so far that they feel that they are then, then can show outrage and, and you know, walk off in, in, a, in, a, in a temper or something like that. So very, very clever. Um, yeah, what did, what, did you, what did you see in, in no, that? I, yeah, there's a lot going on there and I, I agree totally with what you're saying there. And excuse the phone ringing there, that's just to show that we are live and doing this live. It was not the thought police chasing us up. Uh, yeah, and I, I think it links back in a really nice way when you made that point earlier about the the people speaking. You can see Mark Carney in particular look clocks that the camera is on him mm -hmm. and that realizes mm -hmm. that everyone's going to see his reaction. 
and he's got to sort of show that he's listening and appreciating. And Boris does this sort of non-committal nod that just shows he's listening sagely. But mm. what you're saying about not reacting is really important, is it? And that takes us to sort of one of the other features mm. of, a, of appraisal, that framework I was talking about earlier, which yeah. is as well as the, the type of emotive language, it talks about the extent to which participants signal or speakers signal their agreement with each other. And when they talk about other people and other people's writings and speeches, they signal that they are in accord with that or distant from it. And how important that is when you're sort of trying to create groups, trying to create bonds, trying to create affiliation. And we see that, that they, 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 these guys, they know they've got to sort of show appreciation for, for the prime minister speaking here, but they can't show whether they agree or disagree, because if they show to agree, they're actually admitting their own culpability, which is what she's accusing them of. And if they disagree, it will look like they don't agree with her programme. So they're just not engaging with her at all. They're sitting there stony-faced largely, saying, I am neither going to agree nor disagree. I'm going to stay mm -hmm. stony-faced. So that mm -hmm. quite nicely brings us in, into the another mm -hmm. of the resources of, of appraisal. And just very quickly, just because it completes the trilogy in appraisal, the last thing people look at is called graduation. It's to do with emphasising things through numbers, through size and through force. Yeah. Yeah. And this incredible use of numbers to bring home how serious uh, the situation is with, with uh, climate change. Number after number after number, huge numbers of problems compared with a small number of decision makers, again, makes this very emphatic. So in all respects, it's a very well-crafted speech. It uses all the rhetorical devices that are open to, to uh, Mia Mutley to, to make a very powerful speech, while, as you say, reining it in because all the facts are real facts. She keeps it to do with judging competence mainly and only mm. throws in that it's a moral mm. judgment every mm. now and then and without naming names. It's a very well-crafted. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really, really good example of all of the, all of those things and a, and a very important speech of itself uh, as well, of course. It, that just reminded me, you know, the rhetorical strategies, you know, that, that use of repetition, you know, code red to the G7, code red, code red, she says twice to the to the G20. It, it, you know, these kind of, um, you know, stylistic features of, of, of repetition really kind of lift the certain parts of the speech that become, you become quite, um, you know, quite, quite engrossed in, in, in what she's saying. It's very powerful. Um, well, we've, we've listened to the whole thing. And I think, you know, we're, we're our, our role is to comment and think about language, but I think it, we also wanted to give you know, the full full voice to this particular speech as well, because we we agree that it's um you know it's a uh, we we I think more people need to hear it. We we didn't hear it previously. We we're uh, glad that we did um, come across it. Uh, if if somewhat belated, about absences yeah. and people being represented yeah. and whose voices yeah. you can yeah. find these speeches, but they're not the ones that are getting on the news every night, are they? We see the same That's old right. speakers time and time again. Mm -hmm. The people who've always been—they're not the new nations, not the small nations. So it's really useful, and important for us mm -hmm. to 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 share these voices. Yeah, 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 that, uh, absolutely. Um, right on, on a on a slightly uh, lighter note, it, it's your you know we've we're doing the uh, sound bite of the day, and it's your turn, Tom, to choose the sound bite of the day, and you know we're going to have a fantastic segue. I can feel it. I can feel it. Feel oh, it. It's, it's, this is Segway <laughs> City here, Segway City, Segwayville, uh, Segway County. Here we go. Okay, so immediately after this clip on the Twitter feed from which uh, I received it. Uh, We've got three comments. We did say we were going to start looking at how people reacted to these speeches and, the, you know, the popular mm. update, whether effective. The first comment says, this is intelligence and demeanour that the Caribbean needs. 
That's the first third of my soundbite. What we've got again, talking about the intelligence of the speech, but also the demeanor, the way that the speaker uh, positioned herself, the way she carried herself, which reflects very much what we've been talking about, this level of emotion, but reining it in. But at the same time, it's suggesting that the way you present yourself makes you more credible in terms of your message. And again, this is another example of this shift of categories that the judgment of someone's appearance and the way they look, which is an appreciation judgment, changes mm. the way we think of them in terms of their their intelligence, mm. their integrity. Mm. So we mm. see this sort of category shift and this very important thing. We've talked about people being able to present themselves, to position themselves in such a way that they are believed. So this soundbite demonstrates both this shift of categories and how important it is and stuff we've been talking about. But also then the, mm. the first response to this is, this is the intelligence and demeanor the whole world needs. So the first speaker said the Caribbean and was very proud. I think this idea of affiliation, they were very proud of this speaker. The second speaker says we all need this. But it also relates to some of the movement. If you listen again or listen to Mia Muttley again, this movement between the Caribbean, the small island developing states. She uses we an awful lot to mean the people at the conference, but also the whole mm. world. So the shift of scale comes out, brought out by the second tweeter. And the third person says, I envy Barbados, yeah. which is really yeah. nice because it's, showing appreciation for for Mia Muttley and the fact that they think she's a great statesperson. Yeah. But at the same time, we've also then got this last of the uh, appraisal trilogy of affect that good speakers, intelligence, well-presented people make us happy and proud. So again, takes us yeah. back to the whole three categories of appraisal really nicely. I don't know if Jim Martin was paying people to make these comments just to promote appraisal, but <laughs> he a great job in doing so. Yeah, uh, very nicely done, and I, th- I think a really good, really good set of um, uh, tweets. Yeah, from Twitter user Krishnan, Mishmash, and Kelvin Lutan. And Sorry, let's I, give I, a shout out to them. Yeah, give, 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 give them the give them their credit. And uh, you know, I, I also like the the parallelism of the two first tweets. This is the intelligence and demeanor that, uh, and that's what the first one starts with, and the second one mirrors that. This is the intelligence and demeanor. The whole world, you know, so the, the difference goes from the Caribbean to the whole world. So, you know, they could be poets, these two. They're, they're yeah. kind of co, co, co-poets uh, um, uh, tweeting away there. So uh, really good. And I th- what what occurred to me there as you're talking about the, the presentation and the persona, I guess we could say that, that uh, you, you know, the, the Prime Minister of Barbados is presenting us with, we can compare that to the people we've spoken about previously. And, and yeah. um we talked about um, uh, Greta Thunberg the other day, and we talked about Boris Johnson yesterday. Um, and you can and and and, and Gaston Brown from from Antigua, all very different personas presented here. And so and, and this one is you know mo- most similar to Gaston Brown, I think, but um, in a in that controlled and sober way. But there's so much powerful emotion coming through here as well. Um, you know, re- really incredible uh, to to see that and to um, to com- to make that kind of comparison. Yeah, it's quite funny, isn't it? Because both Gaston Brown and, and Mia Muttley, they're making very emotional speeches, and they want to underline that they're being serious. Well, Greta Thunberg has been accused of being too emotional, but at the same time, she's often accused of being too serious. And so, what yeah. she did when she was in government was try to show she was actually quite humorous and passionate as well. So yeah. they're taking yeah. it from different angles, but they're yeah. Mixing this idea of passion, emotion, but seriousness and knowledge and expertise as well. And trying to get that balance that makes a powerful performance while at the same time being 
anchored in reality and also make it make themselves more credible so it's harder for their enemies to knock them down and to shoot the messenger yeah yeah great really good um really enjoyed that discussion tom thanks very much um we uh, i just want to say before we finish we we now have a twitter feed as well um at lang power pod if you're interested in that you can find a, a link also in the in i'll put that in the show notes and um yeah thank you very much for listening goodbye cheers now <laughs>